0: I'm Lily Lee. Welcome to Building Worldviews, the Praxis Circle podcast. We are pleased to present these excerpts which originate from video recorded interviews you can find at PraxisCircle.com. Become a member by registering at our website and subscribe or follow this podcast for our latest episodes. Today, the final episode of our conversation with British author and social critic, Oz Guinness. Joined by Praxis Circle's Doug Monroe, Oz discusses the legacies of the American and French revolutions, modern politics and freedom, and Christianity today. Let's listen.
1: You you read so much about post-Christian America. Do you think that there's the possibility that that's overstated, that 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 it may not be as post as people think it is. It's just changing or that kind of thing, morphing.
2: That's a tricky one because it's not always clear what people mean. So in sociology, secularization is a process by which religion becomes more marginal and less meaningful. But does that mean that people follow secularism? No. Or you take the religious nuns, who are none of the above. Well, some of them are no longer clearly Christian, but they're not atheists. And so a lot of the polls are very confusing, and they're used in false ways, I think. And so we've always got to talk to individual people to discover where they really are. But what is beyond question in terms of post-Christian America is that the intelligentsia, the intellectual world, the world of the universities, has turned against traditional American beliefs, which are broadly Jewish and Christian. And in that sense, since the universities are so important and much of culture is downstream from them, America is post-Christian.
1: I'm. I'm going to leave that. What I think doesn't matter. Um, but you're right. It is a very tr- tricky question, and I, only time will tell. Only time will tell on that. Um, so I'm. Yeah. Um, I'm moving to impossible people, and I'm wondering. Um, you know that uh, you outline your Christian worldview there, and you, you face it squarely against the secularized church. What what is what is the main problem with the difference? Why why does the secularized world create such division and problems? You you really you you bear in on that and impossible people and why we need to be impossible.
2: Let me go back to the beginning. As our Jewish friends say, the first word to Abraham is negative, leave. He had to leave his country, his culture, his kin. So God's new way, not the Tower of Babel, not the pre-flood conditions, God's new way, his project, starting with Abraham, then the family, and then Moses, and then the people of Israel moving down to our Lord himself, God's new way begins negatively with a break. We are a counterculture. We are a creative minority in the world. We are not Egypt. We are not Babylon. We are not Rome. We are not Greece. So our Lord says we are to be in the world, but not of the world. So that's the creative tension. Now that means there are two extremes that are wrong, as Peter Berger puts it. One extreme is defiance and resistance, not in the world at all. The other extreme is accommodation and surrender. Now you look at the church, say, since the 18th century, liberal theology, liberal revisionism, made the great mistake of following the ideas of the world. And you can see that Schleiermacher in the 18th century, Friedrich Schleiermacher, called for Peter to follow the culture despisers of the gospel. The trouble is, he reached them and joined them. And liberal theology, right down to the extremes of the Episcopal Church today, has sold out the faith at point after point. But some fundamentalists have gone to the other extreme. So the challenge is to keep them too. So in Impossible People, I was challenging faithful people to realize that modernity is a challenge, not just false ideas like relativism. And many Christians, I said earlier, they're aware of the danger of ideas, but they're not aware of the dangers of modernity. So I'm not against modernity, but to resist it, you have to recognize it.
1: This is is the same question asked a different way, and then we're going to move to Magna Carta. Uh, the statement how and why progress has no meaning outside of classical Judeo-Christianity.
2: One of the most powerful ideas in our world today is the notion of being progressive or being relevant and not being on the wrong side of history. Now, as G.K. Cheston pointed out a long time ago, Progress is wonderful so long as you give a standard by which people can judge that you're really going forward and not backward. If you just say progressive and don't give a standard, you might be regressive and reactionary. And I would say many of today's progressives are that. They don't give you a standard. Whereas the Bible, you always have notions of human dignity or of truth. Or of the importance of words. They're just standards by which you can judge are we going forwards or backwards. So we should challenge this notion of relevance and being progressive and so on. Or you take, you know, the notion that President Obama hopped on a lot, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Now He quotes Martin Luther King Jr. But Martin Luther King Jr. was quoting Theodore Parker in the 19th century, and Theodore Parker is reflecting a biblical worldview. But without the biblical worldview, how do we know we're going forward? And you can see that many of our progressives are actually going backwards because the only way they can go forward is by an authoritarian state which is a denial of freedom and eventually a denial of justice. So we should make people think, you know, the insult that you're on the wrong side of history, all right, what are the standards by which you're judging? And a lot of this is quite wrong and hypocritical.
1: Well, they have no standards at all anymore. No I mean, it's it's such a joke. They've, they've yeah. come all the way around, and they're just... Oh. it's a joke it's it's a farce everybody knows it every yeah. ordinary person in America who's not on the take gets it and it's crazy um, so th- i think the most political book you've written and it's i submit if if the next president can't read the bible every day <laughs> he should pick up magna carta oh, of humanity and it'll be a short it'd be a shorter <laughs> read but you'd get the point across um, so if you would um, state, I'm sure you've done this a thousand times by now, kind of state the, the thesis of Magna Carta of Humanity, the Sinai Covenant, American Revolution you know what what is the thesis of that book?
2: Well, in the Magna Carta of Humanity, I'm trying to get to the root of the American crisis, but also to be constructive, to have a positive answer at the same time and to do both at once. because as I see it, I may have said this earlier, The deepest crisis is between 1776, which came out through the Reformation, from the Hebrew Torah, the first five books of the Bible, above all Exodus and Deuteronomy, covenant becoming constitution, the consent of the governed, the separation of powers, and so on. And then the ideas which come down from the French Revolution, 1789. Now, a lot of people say, I'm not a Marxist. What do you mean? And I say, this is not classical Marxism. This is cultural Marxism. And they don't understand that. Cultural Marxism goes back to our friend, uh, not our friend, our opponent, Antonio Gramsci. Gramsci was an Italian Marxist who sat in jail under Mussolini and he wrote what became prison notebooks, figuring out why Marx was wrong. There wasn't a revolution as Marx predicted. And he shifted the discussion from economics and politics to culture, from the proletariat in industrial strikes to what he called the gatekeepers, who have the cultural dominance, or his word, hegemony, over our societies. And his ideas were picked up by the Frankfurt School. And in the 60s, the important person in the Frankfurt School in California was Herbert Marcuse, who was the godfather of the new left. And he was the man, And another key moment, at the end of the 60s, he and Rudi Deutschkar in Germany called for a long march through the institutions. They wouldn't win in the streets for all the protest movements. They had to do a long march round, a detour, and win the colleges and universities, the press and the media, the world they called culture industry, Hollywood, entertainment, and then sweep around and win the whole culture. And 50 years later, we can see they've done it. Now, there are other things contributed. You think of the influence, say, of George Soros, early in the century, who realized that with his billions, he could super fund these movements. So what you have in the radical left today is a swarming pop-up protest movement, ever morphing, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, no justice, no peace, Occupy Wall Street, you name it. A hundred of these things a week, all were the same things of revolution as the final goal. And so we've got to have people understanding cultural Marxism. Shall I go on to say how I think it works?
1: Yes. Please, 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 please. I, I'm amazed Gramsci was that uh, smart uh, that early in the, de- in, in the century, although he did mm-hmm. have 100 years prior to that, and uh, uh, I just go on cultural Marxism. Yes. No.
2: There are huge differences between 1776 and 1789, and specifically cultural Marxism. You know, one is their source. One comes from the Bible, the other from the French Enlightenment. Another is their attitude to humanity. The biblical revolution is realistic. That's why you have checks and balances to limit the abuse of power, whereas the French Revolution is utopian. But you move down to the big differences. When it comes to freedom, the Bible has strong views for human freedom. Not only cultural Marxism, but atheists at large don't. Determinism and so on. But currently the big difference is justice. Take, say, the killing of George Floyd. But here the differences are very important. They both agree there is injustice. The differences come in how you address it. So in the radical left, you only have power. God is dead. Truth is dead, Postmodernism. All that's left is power, force, coercion. So you analyze discourse. How do people talk? And you're looking for the majority, the minority, the oppressor, the victim. When you found your victim, whether it's a woman or a race or a whatever it is, you weaponize the victim as a group and use them to subvert the status quo with the end game being revolution. But it is only a conflict of power, nothing else. So the end result is what the Romans call the peace of despotism. In other words, you have a power that's unrivaled, can put down all other powers, and it's authoritarianism. So let's say bluntly, the revolutions of the radical left never succeed and the oppression of the radical left never ends. Now you compare that with a Jewish and Christian answer, the biblical answer. I'll just mention single words. You use truth to address power. That's the prophets. You call for repentance and confession, that about turn of heart and mind. Even Michel Foucault, the postmodernist who hates the Christian faith, argues that confession is admirable. It's a very rare moral act. Why? Someone is going on record against themselves. I screwed up. I cheated. I lied. I committed adultery. I murdered. Someone who confesses is going on record against themselves, not blaming someone else. And then you have forgiveness. Forgiveness is all about freedom. The left is ruthless, merciless. Even Douglas Murray, The Madness of Crowds, points out, there's no mercy in the left. There's a rush to the guillotine. Pull down the statue, cancel their being here. Total lack of mercy. In the gospel, forgiveness. The past is forgiven, you're freed from the burden. The future is forgiven, a future of a second chance. And of course, at the end of the line, reconciliation, repentance, and uh, restoration a total difference between the way they address the two. And, of course, that difference is now America's challenge. Let me put it simply. In the issue of slavery and racism from the past, America's greatest evil meets the establishment's greatest blind spot, meets the radical left's greatest fraud, meets the Bible, the Jewish and Christians' faith, greatest glory. But will America face up to its past in the light of the atonement or not? That's America's choice today.
1: My next question is about what I call the choice. That's that short paragraph you put at the end of each chapter, which uh, we're going to highlight that quote and pound it out there in the social media space uh, next year, um, more than once. Um, you know, are you are you gonna, are you you going in Vegas? Are you gonna place your bets on America? How are we gonna, I, I don't think we can do anything smart, but what are we gonna do here? Are we gonna make the right choice? What do you think? If 50 you look years at, from now, looking back, 50 years from now. If
2: you look at America today, many Americans think we'll muddle through. Those who are really thinking, you have on the one hand, what I call the masters of history. We're in control. We can put a man in the moon. We can solve the problems here. And you have this clash between the masters of history. We can do it. And what I call the monitors of the cycles. In other words, if you go back to Ibn Khaldun or Arnold Toynbee and people like that, there are those who say, for example, no nation lasts more than 250 years years in terms of real power, which runs out on 2026, and July the 4th. And you have people saying this is the the science of the cycles. Well, the first group, the masters of history, are the optimists, self-reliant optimists. The second group tend to be the pessimists all over. I speak as a follower of Jesus, and along with the Jews, we say no. The one thing we know nothing about is tomorrow. All the pundits in the world, they know nothing about tomorrow. In other words, humans are free. We are not fated. We are not deterministic. So where America will be in 20 years time depends on how Americans, leaders, and ordinary citizens choose tomorrow. Will Americans choose renewal or will they choose further decline? It's a choice. I have no idea, only the Lord knows, which way they will go. But it's up to Americans to choose, and they are free to choose.
1: Like my six-year-old oldest grandchild says, who's brilliant, by the way, he's reading at a third or fourth grade level. He says, says, pick a choice. That's right, (laughs) absolutely. Pick a choice. That's why I finished the book, L'Chaim, Choose Life. Any, any passing comment before we get into the last few questions uh, on Christianity today about um, Jewishness, um, Jesus, uh, the importance of the Old Testament?
2: I think those of us who are followers of Jesus need to make sure that we are as fully biblical as we should be. For example, the great truths of the Western civilization come from the Old Testament. Human dignity, truth, words, freedom, justice. Jesus didn't introduce those. Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free, but that freedom begins in Exodus and in human beings made in the image and likeness of God. So we've got to make sure that we are as fully biblical as we should be, and many Christians are disgracefully centered on Jesus alone. Jesus above all, yes, but not Jesus alone. So here in Washington, there are people who say, Jesus plus nothing, and that's heresy. I put it bluntly, that's heresy, and leads to a pietism which is totally ineffective. But there's a second challenge. As our Jewish friends point out, there are a lot of slanders that Christians use about the Jews, sometimes unconsciously, which we need to change. For example, that Judaism is all about the law and the Christian faith is all about love. That's rubbish. At the heart of the Torah, Jews are called to love the Lord their God not just serve him or follow him, love him, and to love their neighbors as themselves and to love the stranger. The stranger's not in my image, he's a stranger, but the stranger's in God's image. And you can see that triple call to love is at the heart of the Old Testament. And so Christians have gotta be very careful the way they describe the differences, because we're often not true to the Bible and not fair to our dear friends, the Jews. And we're at a time of rising anti-Semitism. You know that anti-Semitism is the worst stain on the Christian church in history. That we did that to the Lord's people. Now, I thank the Lord that as an evangelical, evangelicals have no blood on their hands. And you can see from the 17th century onwards and then William Wilberforce and in the 19th century, Lord Shaftesbury, evangelicalism, my own great grandfather, were in the forefront of restoring the Jews to their own homeland. But anti Semitism is a terrible stain on the Catholic Church and a terrible stain on the Russian Orthodox Church, the Bagrams. So we've got to repent of that and stand courageously against the vicious anti-Semitism rising in Europe, rising in the Middle East, and saddest of all, rising even in America.
1: Well, I've, I've heard it said that um, long after America is, is gone, um, hopefully that doesn't happen anytime soon, but afterward the, the Jews will be there of and course. and uh, probably the Roman Catholic Church or at least some organized Christian and the Muslims—they will be there, and so we're not going anywhere. Um, now that gets me to Christianity today, which is kind of an, an excuse for a, a title. But um, so evangelicals in the United States—you wrote the book *Fat Bodies, Fat Minds*. Fit bodies. I'm, yes, I'm sorry, uh, *Fit Bodies, Fat Minds*. Um, and. I, just from my point of view, the, the badness, whatever it was, of, of the American brand of, of fundamentalism, so that really has changed a lot in this country in, in 20 or 40 years. Um, what are the good and bad trends in that area in America that you see since, since say, the 80s,
2: the early 80s? Well, just take evangelicalism. At the time of the Revolution, more than 90% of Americans were out of the Reformation background. And so the Catholic Church was not that strong in terms of either ideas or people. It was the Reformation which put its stamp on America. But you can see, take evangelicalism at large. Up till the 50s, most evangelicals had a faith that was privatized a warm-hearted pietism, privately engaging, publicly irrelevant, And most evangelicals slept through the 60s, amazingly. But many of them swung in 1970s from overly privatized faith to an overly politicized faith. And that was a mistake too, because you know the old maxim, the first thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. It's downstream from important things in culture. So we should never be politicized. The left introduced politics as the be all and end all in the 1920s and tried to politicize the whole of life, which eventually leads to state control and authoritarianism. So evangelicals are confused. And now we've got the tarnishing of evangelical as a term, and it's now considered only politically people talk about the Trumpification of evangelicals. And you can see being turning against evangelicalism because of the way it's been privatized. For myself, I am an unashamed evangelical. It is not defined politically. If you take the three great terms in the Christian church, evangelical, Catholic, Orthodox, Catholicism, very important principle, universality. Orthodoxy, a very important principle. I would argue that the evangelicals are those who define them's faith and their lives by the good news of Jesus. You see it in Isaiah 61 with the prediction of the Messiah. You see it in Luke 4 when our Lord says, Today in your hearing this scripture has been fulfilled in, in front of you evangelicals are those who define themselves by the good news and our Lord came to bring good news to the poor and so on. That's the evangelical. And I would argue that's even deeper and earlier than the other two terms. And while there are followers of Jesus in the earth, there will always be evangelicals. Mr. Trump, bless his heart, whether you like him or not, he has nothing to do with the making of what's an evangelical. So the Trumpification or the politicization of evangelicals is wrong. Jesus is Lord and no American president on either side trumps Jesus. Now the early church were prepared to die for that. And the problem with some Americans today is they put their politics above their faith. And that's disastrous.
1: Um, Okay, this is a question about China that's very related. There are only three more questions. Um, and you're you're kind of an expert in China, having grown up there. I don't know if you I'm follow it. Not an it. expert, but I grew up. That's true. Yeah, yeah. But but you have a feel for it beyond um, anyone else that hasn't. Uh, do you see what's happening in, uh, to Christianity in China? What what do you see happening to Christianity Christianity in China, given Francis and what he's done there, and also given the citizen ratings things they're doing, and you know there was there was the hope that. Christianity could flourish more there, um, and maybe soften communism, uh, like, like it tends to do and like freedom tends to do. But I'm getting pessimistic. There was, there was a, an article I read this morning in the National Review that talked about their dominance of technology, and uh, it's, it's when you have that secular, tyrannical mindset that can invest you know, whereas our model is the opposite. And it's it's a competition of models, not unlike the Soviet Union was coming out of World War II. So my question is, what do you see happening to Christianity in China based on what you know?
2: I left China as a boy in 1951, and my parents a couple of years after that. But after 150 odd years of Protestant missions, there were only three-quarters of one million Christians. And now, there are upwards of 80, maybe 100, maybe more than that. There are more Christians in China than there are Communist Party members. So the growth of the church, where I happened to be born, was the epicenter of the fastest growth of the church in 2,000 years. But Many years ago, 15 years or so ago, I was at a university in China at the Chinese Academy of the Social Sciences. And the discussion of the day was this, which ideology would replace Marxism? And as they put it, the is in power, the ideology is hollow. And the word vacuum, vacuum, vacuum came up all day. And as they put it then, this is 15 or so years ago, Would China go nationalist? Or would China go Confucian? Or would China go Buddhist? Or, in a number of decades, would the Christian faith be the majority faith in China? Well, that discussion was before Xi Jinping. Clearly, Xi Jinping has gone nationalist with a powerful help of the thinking, as I said earlier, of Carl Schmidt, the pro-Nazi philosopher, and that's where we are today. And he's giving a sort of window dressing to it through all the stress on Confucianism throughout Western universities, but it's basically nationalist. And so they're coming down very hard on the Uyghurs and on Falun Gong, and above all, on the house churches. In other words, any organization or institution that is an alternative authority is a rival and must be squelched. I think that's where we are today. But the great challenge is the difference between the authoritarian control and the amount of freedom which technology brings. Take the internet. Will that eventually bring down totalitarianism. I'm not, I don't know, only the Lord knows. And if that is so, will the Christian faith, which has remained courageous and faithful despite intense persecution, emerge to play a key part? Now, the trouble with that, and many Western Christians look forward rather fondly to that, but remember the house churches have no seminaries, so there's no deep theology and not much freedom to develop a Christian worldview. So many of the house church people are very faithful, I put it in a good way, pietists. Well, that's not enough to take on the challenges of modernity. So I don't know, the future is open, but it'll be fascinating for the world. And obviously very important for China and very important for the whole world, because if Xi Jinping's nationalistic China prevails, the world's in trouble. America declines, authoritarianism flourishes. The world's in trouble.
1: It's kind of like um, maybe Rome was around Marcus Aurelius, where he was seemed like a pretty good guy, and he really was, but he persecuted Christians a little bit, and it could have gone either way. Uh, you still had, an, uh, you know, a good long time before Constantine came along, and. You just never know. But um, okay, three more questions, if I may. Um, What is your critique? This one wasn't in here. What was your critique? What is your critique of the conservative movement since Reagan? Could be good or bad, but I just want to know what you have to say about it.
2: Well, I think the conservative movement is playing a very, very important part. But two comments, one, it cannot be the market alone. And there is a difference between the social values conservatives and the economic conservatives. It cannot be the market alone. And the other thing is the social conservatives got to remember, what are their roots? What are the roots of this outside of Judaism and the Christian faith? In other words, outside the Bible. And those are the two weaknesses, I think, of much of the conservative movement. Those who make it only economics and those who pretend you can have conservatism, but you don't want to bother about the roots because that's embarrassing.
1: Um, This question, I'm just going to read it to you. Is the fundamental divide in America, which institution is sovereign over the other, the family versus the federal government? And I mean, beyond the individual, you know, you have groups. So, which group is sovereign, the family versus the federal government?
2: I don't think that's the alternative. In other words, the federal government should be balanced by the state and the local community. The word federal comes from the Latin word fides, which means covenant. In other words, the agreement between the center and the periphery between the global and the national and the national and the local. Whereas the family is different, the family is local, but you've got this matrix, the bedrock trio, the family, the school, and the church or the synagogue. Those are the trio which are local, and they are the ones, after all the family, is the place where love generates the next generation. And that shapes identity, that builds character, that forms virtue. So the family is the deepest of all, but of course the family lives by the faith that comes from the church. And the school is the one that should pick up the picture and carry on the story of really shaping people and shaping their worldview. So it's not federal against the family, it's the federal or the government against the local, both of which should be federal. I dislike in America the word feds means the people who come from Washington. That's wrong. The feds should be the covenanters, the constitutionalists who are both government in Washington and believe in the local, the town hall and so on, the town hall meeting. But the family should be the real local along with the church and the school
1: last question is, and I can't believe, I I thought I had started asking this question to everyone. I'm going to apply the law of non-contradiction to you. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about America? There are ways you can answer that and be both, but I'm going to let you figure that out.
2: I'm often asked in churches and universities, am I an optimist or a pessimist? And I always say neither. Because in America, often that's a matter of the circumstances or of personality. Is the glass half full or half empty? I try and be a realist, always looking in the white of the eye of reality. And yet I think as a follower of Jesus with hope. So I'm always hopeful. Now, when it comes to America at the moment, we're in a bad situation. There's a madness and a perversity in many of the ideas that are being explored. So I'm a realist and morning by morning you weep or you get angry over the things you see around the country that are being pressed forward. There's a madness. And I, as an admirer of this country, I can't stand how Americans are squandering, many of them, or suppressing their own Republican freedom. I don't mean Republican as a party, but as an American republic. But as I said earlier, human life is not fated. We're not determined. We can choose tomorrow to go a different way. So as I see it, one of America's biggest problems is leadership. There's no Lincoln today. Max Dupree. Where is the leader who defines reality? There's not a single leader at the highest level defining the problem as it really is and pointing out the way we should go. So the crisis of leadership is itself one of the deepest problems America's facing. I say this again and again to congressmen and senators here in Washington. Am I hopeful? Yes, there could be a person. Let me tell you a story, Doug, that I love and finish with yeah. this. Uh, when World War II broke out, there was a young Cambridge philosopher, a Don, who was an atheist, and he was seconded to the Middle East. He took with him some of the Western classics to read so that after the war, if he survived, he could teach them at Cambridge. One of them he took was the Bible. And in reading the Bible, he became a follower of Jesus, but found himself in North Africa, The British army was in the middle of the longest retreat in British history, 800 miles from Tobruk to Alexandria. There was terrible class divisions and the British problem, you have the problem of race, we have a problem of class. The difference between the officers and the men was appalling, the morale was terrible. And so here was this young man, now a Christian, no church, no teaching, except the Bible. And so he prays and says, Lord, how do you want me to pray? And the Lord said, pray this prayer. Lord, set over us a leader, such that it will be for your glory to give the victory through him. He prayed that every day as they retreated. Churchill fired the general, he was a disaster. Sent out a second general, he died en route. He had to send out a third general, a young, relatively untested general. But he happened to be the son of a great Christian leader back in Britain. By this time, they're defending Alexandria, the Suez Canal and Jerusalem. Imagine if the Nazis had captured Jerusalem. So the young general got the troops together. And remember, this young Cambridge man had prayed every day. Lord said over Salida. And he said, the young general said, men, Let us pray to the Lord of the Armies, what the Bible calls the Lord of Hosts. And as this young man heard this on a transistor radio, God said to him, this is the answer to your prayer. The battle the next week was the Battle of El Alamein. And as Churchill said, until El Alamein, all defeat. After El Alamein, all victory. And this young man listening to this, the, the, the general, generals, Alexander Montgomery, uh, who became a great hero after that. But as this young man, Derek Prince, heard this, God said to him, this man is the answer to your prayer. My wife and I pray every day. We turn into the plural. Lord, set over us leaders such that it will be to your glory to give the victory through them today and of course there are women as well as men who might be such a leader. But that's one thing America deeply needs, a leader, to define reality and call the nation forward by going back to the best of the first principles of the American experiment.
0: That's Doug Monroe talking with British author Oz Guinness on Building Worldviews, the Praxis Circle podcast. That's it for our four-part series with Oz. For more, be sure to subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to podcasts. And visit us at PraxisCircle.com. I'm Lily Lee.